Hey friends, it's Rena Olson. Welcome to this very special episode of the Relevate Podcast. In this episode, you're going to meet a friend and a client of mine, Kayla Bergeron. Kayla is smart. She's a an amazing career woman. She's funny. She's also a survivor of the 9-11 attacks at the World Trade Center in New York City. I've known Kayla for a couple of years now, but I haven't fully known her story until this conversation and kind of rocked my world. And when I see her, I think of that quote, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Kayla is one of those people. To meet her, you would never know what she has endured as a survivor of the 9-11 attacks. So this is a tough one, y'all, and uh, it's um, it's real life. So I hope you enjoy uh, kind of a very insider look on what happened that day from Kayla's perspective and then what has transpired the 20 years after the attack. It's a very important conversation, and I'm so glad you're tuned in for this chat with Kayla Bergeron. Kayla Bergeron, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thank you for having me, Rena. So awesome to be here with you today, and I'm an emotional wreck, so I just am going to apologize up front because, yeah, this is a really amazing opportunity to sit down with you and unpack your story. I've known about it, but I didn't really know the full details, and and no one will ever know the full details, so I just appreciate you being here and your willingness to share because it's one of those stories that's tough, but it's ultimately hopeful. And you're just one amazing woman. So thank you for being here. Okay, so let's kind of take it back a few decades. And if I were to ask you, Kayla, how would you describe yourself on September 10th, 2001? What would you say to me? I was at the peak of my career. I was loving life. I was actually, I took a New York Times editorial board writer with my boss, who was executive director of the Port Authority, to JFK. There's an old TWA building. It's an uh, architectural marvel. We were talking about redeveloping into a conference center. Mm. That's that's the last time I I saw I saw him. But um, so you were a so for people who don't know you, you were career woman working in New York City. You were working for the Port Authority. And um, had kind of a, a big level job, right? Like what kind of things were a, you doing? Dealing with the, the press, working with the executives to make sure we had consistent messaging, marketing, customer service, all of the external, actually internal communication for the agency. And your office was where? I had the office of a lifetime. I was on the 68th floor, corner office, view of the Statue of Liberty, North Tower. Of the World Trade Center. And it just moved from the 73rd to the 68th floor. Thank you. The morning of September 11th, 2001, I guess it was just a typical work morning. If you can just kind of share what you were doing. Sure. There was a primary election for mayor. So I went to vote that morning, and actually I saw Mayor Giuliani at the polling station and then Michael Bloomberg, who would then become mayor. I took the train to the World Trade Center, the five train. 
I got off the train, hit my Starbucks, uh, venti mocha, and stro- <laughs> stro- strode on the on the plaza. And uh, it, I just remember the color of blue that day. It was so striking. It was like something in the movies. It was just a beautiful day. So you go up to your office, and I think I read where you were preparing for a meeting. And then what happened? Yeah, I was sitting at my desk. I was preparing for a meeting. We were actually having a meeting with my boss, Neil Levin. We wanted to do something um, spectacular with the website. And so he had marketing people coming in from Goldman Sachs, where he used to work. So I'm sitting at my desk preparing, and all of a sudden the building lunges forward about 10 feet, then it comes back. And I'm thinking, okay, okay, those buildings were designed this way, but then I saw some stuff coming out of the window. It was like somebody above me had taken all the papers off the desk and thrown it out the window, which I thought was kind of odd. And um, eventually I got a call from somebody in emergency management. They at the time thought maybe a small plane veered off track. Okay. So I notified staff, we're going to set up a command center at the Marriott, which is what was the case in 1993. And like how many staff were in that, in that building? Well, there's 50,000 staff on the plaza at all those buildings at one time. There were approximately 3,000 Port Authority employees on this floor at the time, since it was it was relatively early. Maybe they had 30 staff on the floor at that time. So, so y'all began. You knew you knew there was trouble in in, in the back. It was like yeah. we got to get out of here. Yeah, it's a small plane. We've done a lot of drills. And so I told senior staff, we're going to the Marriott. I had sent some of my staff out. I said, we need to hang phone lines, take the, uh, take the flash drive, drive with the business continuity plan, that sort of thing. And then I guess a little time passed and I texted the people I'd sent out ahead of me. I said, okay, you're at the Marriott, everything ready to go? They were only 10 flights of stairs ahead of me which I thought was kind of strange. But it was time to evacuate. A security guard came into my office and said, "You, we have to evacuate the floor. I said, give me a second. Let me turn off my computer. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Um, but I walked the floor with the security guard to just make sure everyone had evacuated. I had a person who had physical challenges, so she required a, um, a wheelchair. Uh, two gentlemen had picked her up and, and brought her in the stairwell, so she was okay. And then, actually, as I was walking out the door, the phone rang. And he said, this is NBC News, Tom Brokaw's office. We want to go live. Uh-uh. I said, I'm so sorry. We're evacuating the building. This is probably an intern. He said, you don't understand. This is Tom Brokaw's office. I said, you don't understand. We're evacuating. And I just put the phone down. Again, in those early hours, it, mm. no one knew. No, no one knew. Yeah. So we get into the stairs, very early, very quiet. After the 1993 bombing, they had put some of this glow-in-the-dark tape mm. in the middle of the, the, the stairwell. So all we needed to do was stay on, stay on the line. Um, but we had to step aside, obviously, when police officers were coming down with people who were injured, 
or the firefighters were going up with the big oxygen oxygen tanks and um, was it axes. Was it orderly and calm at that point? Orderly, orderly and calm. I guess mm-hmm. um, all those drills we had done uh, paid off. Yeah. And so we're just going down, going down, going down. And all of a sudden, uh, I run into a colleague in the aviation department. I think on around the thirtieth floor. We start talking. I get something. And in those days, the uh, we didn't have the smartphones like we have today. I had a BlackBerry, but it had a little keyboard. I also had a phone, but the phone service is down. The Blackberries work. So a friend of mine sent me an article that said uh, terrorists attacked the World Trade Center. So I see my friend from Maybation. I said, I'm going to show you something, but don't react. I showed it to her. We looked at each other and said, let's get this line moving. so we're still we're still going down. It's still orderly until we get to the sixth floor. Right before we get to the sixth floor, or we just get to the sixth floor, that it felt like the earth shook, um, and our tower shook, and then it twisted, and the stairwell was blocked. What had happened was the south tower had come down, and so uh, we reached a point where we couldn't go down anymore because it twisted the building. We couldn't open the door. So um, at the same time, we had these big old pipes. They contain water for the chillers, for the air air conditioning system. And um, so that water is just rushing down, rushing down. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess this is it. You always wonder what what it's going to be when you have that moment, how are you going to act? And I was calm. Then um, a few few minutes later, all of a sudden, Port Authority police officer David Lim pops out of nowhere, right up right above us, and he says, "Come up." Now we know the other building went down. The last thing we want to do is go up, but we didn't have any other options. So he took us through the building. The Port Authority had built the World Trade Center, so the police officers and the security guards knew them in and out. So they took us to another stairwell and we climbed over desks. There was wire. There and like was how, glass. how many were in your group? The group I was in, I guess we were some of the last people to get out. There were probably maybe 10 to 12 people, but my little contingency was like three people. So we walked over to go to the other stairwell. That that stairwell too, the, the pipes had burst there too. And so it was like the Grand Rapids coming down. So as you go down the stairwell, you have to open a door, you know, to to get to get um into rooms or what have you or to exit the building. And so I said, Oh I could see this white coming out. And I think, okay, that's the sky, that's the sky. We're okay. So there were like three of us in our group now. And where we were, it was like being in heaven. There was, uh, looked like fresh fallen snow. I guess the soot was white, the, the ceiling, the walls, the floor. And so the people I was with started to scream. I said, don't scream, because there's stuff still coming down. So let's look for footprints, because we couldn't see a door or exit or anything at that point. So we didn't, we didn't see any footprints. I said, okay, now it's time to scream. 
And so we started screaming. And then we saw a light. It looked like a flashlight. And there was a voice, must have been through a bullhorn, said, look, if you can hear, the, hear my voice, follow the light. So we followed the light through this. I'm not exactly sure. We, we were in the lobby of the uh, One World Trade Center at, at the corner of the West Side Highway in Beasy Street. So we came out of through the side of the building and uh, the devastation was unbelievable. Um, you know, to see something like that in the United States uh, was kind of shocking. But, you know, I'm just focused on getting out. And so uh, where we, where we, where we, where we were was on the plaza of the World Trade Center. The plaza is not street ground. So we, we went around the side of the buildings and then there were these stairs that are now in the museum they call them the survivor stairs, 30, 30 tons of concrete. And so once we got to those stairs, that was the only way to hit the, get to the ground point at that point, then I'm thinking, all right, we made it, we made it. And ironically, we're at the corner of Church, Church Street and Beasley. So taking a little breath, and all of a sudden, in those days, Reno was uh, much more slim. Okay. You know, I had my little suit, my little pumps, and all that other stuff. And then the cop says, run. I'm like, run. I just spent 45 minutes trapped in the stairwell. I'm not running. And then I turned around. And there was this huge, thick, black cloud that was engulfing all lower Manhattan. So I ran 16 blocks, probably the fastest I've ever run in like years, all the way to the Holland Tunnel. And New York blocks weren't exactly small. Yeah. <laughs> so we get to the corner. So did you, of, out, uh, did you outrun that cloud? I did to a degree. Um, at that point, some of us, we just dumped underneath cars until yeah. uh, it dissipated. So we get up and I'm wondering what we're going to do. Some merchants gave us some bottled water because we had soot all over us. And then I knew we couldn't go to the Marriott. <laughs> um, and some of my staff, we had staggered, staggered schedules because of the demand by the news media. So a lot of them hadn't even gotten into the office yet a lot of them probably didn't even know what happened so I said we're going to go over to our police headquarters just over the Hudson River into New Jersey so I waved down a um, Port Authority police officer the Holland Tunnel was another Port Authority facility and so he gave us a ride we get over to our police headquarters I'm like where's Neil Levin Neil Levin was the executive director of the Port Authority Everybody's like, so I'm like, where's Fred Marone? Fred Marone is the superintendent of police. It turns out the police department had some kind of conference. So the leadership of the police department, they were all still in the tower. We didn't know at the time, but they had all, all perished. And so um, these are the early hours, still waiting for people to get to to the police headquarters to figure out what we're going to do. Then I see the chief operating officer come. He's one of the ones I sent to the Marriott. Part of the 
roof of the Marriott had collapsed on him. So, you know, years later, I realized I nearly sent some people to their death. Um, But um, it was determined that we probably shouldn't stay there because of the proximity to the Holland Tunnel. No one knew if the terrorists were done. And so we moved to another facility in New Jersey, another fourth Guard facility that was much safer. And so the chief operating officer said to me, I need your help. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, we're going to have thousands of news inquiries. I'm thinking how I'm going to staff that, that sort of thing. So we need to figure out who's dead and who's alive. Um, Because the Human Resources Department hadn't gotten there. So I called a friend who was in another department. Turns out she was on the last path train from New Jersey into Manhattan that had been stopped. So she got, thankfully, she, she was spared. But I called her in. I'd worked on uh, inaugural gubernatorial balls and stuff like that. She was perfect at details. So she came in. And what we did was we started uh, Excel spreadsheet and we we had set up two phone numbers that the, the news media helped us with. One was Port Authority, employees needing to know where to report, calling this number. So as they called in, we're doing a little cheer and then putting them to Excel spreadsheet. And then we set up another phone line for families who hadn't heard from loved ones. And so, that was for the first few days, um, but I had to get back to how we're going to handle the news media. What are we going to say? It's just a 24-hour proposition. So I called both governors' offices, New York and New Jersey. I said I'm going to need public information officers probably for the next few months. So they sent me people. One of the first things I did after that was meet with the chief legal officer because of the ramifications of what we might say down the road when we go to court and we'd be fighting for insurance proceeds. So at the time, we limited our remarks to the state of the Port Authority facilities at the airports, the tunnels and the bridges. And we provided the phone numbers to the news media who were very helpful. Those numbers I just told you that would help us uh, locate employees and um, and trying to find out if my all my guys on my staff were okay. Thankfully, they were. So, Kayla, let me stop you. Let me stop you there. Like, where was your head in all of this? Did you just like switch off the trauma of what you've been through, and did you just go into work mode? I mean, how yeah, did I didn't even... stop out of work mode. I mean, it was um, it was a gift at that time. I never stopped from the work mode. So I really didn't, I think that's why many years later, it took a while until when I slowed down years and years later, that's when it kind of rose to the surface. And you must have just been in such a state of shock because here you're recording your coworkers' names who are no longer with us on a spreadsheet. I mean, just, and, and there's, how many names ultimately ended up on that spreadsheet? 72 Port Authority employees didn't make it. 33 of them were the Port Authority Police Department. Um, but all this time, I'm still... 
And those are your friends. I'm, like I'm sure. This. I'm sure they were your yeah your work. Family. Yeah, and and the people I work with, um, you learn a lot of people. Learn a lot from people during um, very challenging circumstances and and having that support for people who have been through the same experience, but we're all in the same place. Um, and a matter of fact, because of the business continuity plan, we could have operated anywhere. We didn't miss one Port Authority paycheck during that whole incident. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the agency was well prepared. And, you know, I really, I really liked working with them, um, the best of the best. Yeah, I, I just saw a 9-11 special last night on um, Nat Geo, and it was a survivor of, he was a Port Authority employee who was buried in the rubble. He was one of the few survivors, um, um, Sergio, somebody. Oh, he, I think he was an engineer. Yeah, I didn't know him. I knew of him, but I didn't know him. Yeah, and he just had... You know, there were so many miraculous things that had to happen for him to survive. I mean, you think about the, um, you know, the your Port Authority officer who was there who said, you know, come this way. And the timing of that, I mean, did he make it out, Kayla? He did. He did. And then he's, he just retired. I'm in touch with him. What about, yeah. what about your friend, Patty Clark? She's okay. She's okay. We, she actually had a, uh, her son was in daycare that day. <laughs> and this is kind of funny. We were in the stairwell. She wanted her husband who had, was out in California on business. She wanted him to know that she was okay. So and she, she was one of the people, theory. she was one of the people yeah. with you in that group that was coming down in the stairwell. Yeah. She, she was in the aviation department. We buddied up in the, uh, in the stairwell. So she used my Blackberry to send her husband. It's, uh, whatever her husband's name is, hey, I'm okay. So by the time he sees that, she said they're not TV people or anything. It's like, who is this Kayla? Because <laughs> the note came from me. <laughs> <laughs> all the fun, all the funny stuff. Um, wow. So yeah, those are those moments. And every September 11th, I have a call that I do with former colleagues and actually some people in my life now. And it's a, um, it's a, it's an uplifting call. We don't dwell on, you know, the obvious, but there's so many interesting uh, little stories in, be in between that we were able to laugh about, you know, in those, in those months. Yeah, for sure. So how many funerals of friends did you attend? In those, about, those 30, about 33. Wow. And I guess you'd go to a funeral and then probably just go right back to work. Exactly. Exactly. And we had a, in October, we had a tribute ceremony at Madison Square Garden. That was hard. I just remember Catherine Battle playing Ave Maria. It was so moving. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath. You began to pick up the pieces of your life. How, how much longer did you stay on it at the Port Authority? And then you had an opportunity in, in Florida. Let's talk a little bit about, about that. For context, 
we went from rescue to recovery, rebuilding, and we had the, through the 9-11 Commission sort of reliving, which was very difficult because grieving parents brought photos of their sons and daughters who, who died and they pointed the finger at us and the poor authority, you killed my son, you oh, killed my daughter. Gosh. And obviously they were just in anguish. Yeah. Um, that's kind of stuck with me. Um, but your question was, um, I stayed, I started there in 1999 and I stayed through October of uh, 2006. I got an, it's not like I was looking, but I got an offer of a job working for an obscure agency called the South Florida Water Management District in, in uh, West Palm Beach. They're responsible for um, water, so to speak, from Orlando all the way to the Keys. But what interested me the most was restoration of America's Everglades. That was another fantastic job to see how, you know, after years of legacy phosphorus destroying the waterways, we were actually using plants to clean the water. Mm. So that that was an incredible job. At what point did you begin to struggle with? Would you say it was mental health issues, or how would you how would you describe your struggle, Kayla? In two thousand and eleven, the economy began to wane, and so there were cutbacks by the agency through. Tallahassee. And so there was a 180 manager workforce reduction. Of course, public relations, marketing, all that's the first to go. And so I was let go. Um, I was part of that. And so that was 2011. 2012, my mom was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And I guess that's when things started to get a little difficult for me. I didn't know at the time. I had, I still have it somewhat today is that the anxiety is so paralyzing, it affects you physically. But all I could think was, well, okay, I was let go from a job. My mom's diagnosed with lung cancer. I didn't know what this agony was. And I remember even when I finally got to my visit my parents several months after 9-11, to sit still in a car was very challenging for me mentally. Um, and sometimes today I, I still, I have a difficulty um, relaxing. So after that, I had a DUI in 2013 in Florida. And um, my parents, my mom's diagnosed with, with cancer at that time, they were in Georgia. And I was too ashamed to tell my parents um, what had happened. I didn't want them to worry about me. And at the same time, I'm going through my savings. I lose my house to foreclosure. Um, I guess I was a mess, but I, I lost my license for six months, my driver's license. I'm not exactly sure what I was doing. I mean, um, were, I'm assuming you just isolated and were alone during all of that. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Eventually my mom died. And then I moved to Georgia. I'm the single one in the family. And I, le I left 2015 
Um, and then I moved to Georgia in 2016, I think it was July, and then January 2017. That's when I had DUI number two here in Georgia, less than a mile from my house. But that turned out to be a blessing because I was diagnosed through the Forsyth County, they call it the CARE program, it's a dual diagnosis program for mental health and PTSD. That's where I got the PTSD diagnosis. And I was so relieved. Yes, I was ashamed of the DUI and, you know, something I'll regret the rest of my life. But I was relieved that there was something wrong. And I just couldn't put my, my, my a name to it. And, but I was angry. I still was angry at myself because I didn't know what PTSD was. I thought it was for soldiers. I thought it was for victims of domestic violence. I thought it was first responders. You know, you see it in the movies. You see it in the movies, the guy reliving a traumatic incident. And so it didn't, it didn't register with me. But through this program, I learned a little bit about PTSD. I'm now talking to veterans to understand what it is. And it, like I said, it's required radical acceptance on my part. They were very dark times working through this because when you, you learn it's uh, not curable, you realize you got to learn to live a new way and you wonder if your life is over but through that program the Forsyth County Court program I had access to a doctor with medication no benzos but that really helped the anxiety tremendously and you had individual treatment group treatment you learned all these coping skills that can help you with PTSD but they can help you in the challenges of daily life. And um, like I said, that, that, that program saved my life. Wow. Uh, I just can't believe it took that long for you to get help. I mean, that's, um, to me, that's such a, a glaring gap in our healthcare system that when people are struggling with mental health issues, there's you know, where to, where to even begin to go? And a lot of people like you, you don't even know what you're dealing with. You know, you just thought you, I mean, did, did you did you ever stop and say, wow, I'm self-medicating because I never dealt with this, this trauma of 9-11? Did those dots, ever, they didn't really connect for you? No, until? they didn't. And I was, I had seen a doctor at the time and and when I was in Florida, but the diagnosis is depression. But uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm not going back to New York this year. I've, I've been there several times since then. I spoke at the opening of the museum. My story is included in the museum. But for all of the government officials who talk about never forget, then they have to fight for the guys, the first responders who have lung cancer and stuff now. It's, it's very hollow. And, and one of the reasons why I talk about my story is not so much about me, but there are civilians, We're not, you know, not trained to respond to um, crisis. And so there are several people out there, civilians who just went to work every day. A lot of them narrowly escaped and they haven't gotten help to this day. No one's ever reached out to them. I've met some people uh, over the Internet telling me about their stories and they're either self-medication through drugs or alcohol. It's a huge hole 
of people who are just left behind. And um, it just it, it just makes me sick that America can't take care of their own. Exactly. So when 9-11 hit, I was here in metro Atlanta in the suburbs. And, you know, the collective response, I mean, that attack, it happened to every American. And, you know, but since I wasn't there, I didn't smell it. I didn't see it. I didn't feel that dust on my skin. You know, it's like every year I kind of relive that, you know, and it's just, um, it's, it's emotional and it's hard for me and I'm so far removed. So I can't imagine for you to be there and for you to have that burden that you have to carry every day of your life. And the fact that you're, you're still standing and you've, you know, you, you fought back to piece it together as best as you could. And I think at one point I read you were working at a sub shop just to pay the bills. Yeah, when I was uh, in the accountability court program, it's a rigorous program, individual treatment, group treatment. You have to go, you have to go to court twice a month, drug screens anywhere from one to seven days a week. So the it's only an time option. I could find so for people don't huh? know, so for the people that don't know, it's an option to like rehab, right? It's a Explain right. a little bit about, about the court, because it's so the, awesome. Well, when I was in Florida, just uh, through my experience, when I had my first DUI, I had to drug screen like once every two weeks, and I could pick the day. And the only require other requirements, I went to a, a recovery meeting. When I got here, it's totally different. Here, you have the legal requirements, but they have a treatment program for Scythe County. That's very unique to any accountability court in the nation. For sure. So the fact that they offer the treatment, like I said, is a, is a, is a gift from above. But because the program is so rigorous, and I was in the program for three years, there aren't many employers who are willing to work with someone with that type of time demand. And so I got a job at Subway uh, to pay the bills and the uh, the people I work for, you know, I called them when I got out of jail, told them what happened. They were just, um, they were almost like family. They said, Caleb, don't worry. I'm here for you. We'll work with you. And so, yeah, we do what we got to do. And it's through your involvement with drug court that our paths would eventually cross. Um, there's this organization called The Connection in Forsyth County, um, which is in North Metro Atlanta, Again, doing amazing work to help people in recovery. So let, let's talk a little bit about how you got connected there. And It's an interesting thing. <laughs> I have COVID to thank for the job. <laughs> when um, one of the things, when you have PTSD, your mind just, it doesn't, it doesn't stop. Same thing. My mind, it still works in the same mode it was working on in September 11th. And I'm a high energy person, so I multitask all the time anyway. And so um, what my doctor told me said, Kayla, this is gonna this is gonna probably be a trigger for us. You need to stay busy. Okay. So I called up Stacy Orlin. Hey Stacy, tell me about the connection. And so I came here, started volunteering during COVID. And then after some time, I was offered a position here. What's important about that is I, um, I think I lost my way because uh, 
my mom had inspired me to go into public service. I've worked in government most of my life. And I kind of lost that because you, you think you got two DUIs, even though you're making changes, you're not going to be able to get past the employer on the background check. So I thought my everything was pretty much over. And so um, to have this opportunity, I realized I found my purpose again. I have the connection, Catherine, do thank, thank for that. Wow. And what a blessing you've been. And now you are a peer coach, so you're helping people get help who are struggling, who've walked a similar path. And, um, yeah, just in the trenches, helping people every day, day in, day out. Pretty amazing, Kayla. I think the survivor staircase, it's, it's like recovery has been your second survivor staircase. Which wow. Taking that, that owning it, that, you know, it's like, wow, I've got a problem. I need to get help. You had the resources finally to get you help. But then just walking out your recovery every day. And I've learned in working with um, addiction and treatment centers that so many times it's pain that people are trying to, to mask. It's not, it's just pain. And the, and the pain, I mean, pain is pain, but wow, your pain, I can't, it's off the chart. So for you to still be standing, yeah, I mean, you're just my hero, Keila. Thank you. Um, The medicine, the doctors, um, I continue to strong recovery program. But the other thing that helped me, a World Trade Center case manager told me when I entered the accountability court program, said, Kayla, have you ever thought about equine therapy? I'm like, huh? <laughs> As a kid, I fell off a horse nine years old. I said, I, I don't know. So I called special questions in Milton. They invited me there. And I thought I was going to ride a horse or something. It's not, equine therapy is not, it has nothing to do with that. It's um, something about the horses is miraculous. They are so intuitive and there's something healing there. I call the farm Peaceville because it's the place where everything stops for me. But the first time I went there, there's a mayor named Lily. And I found out later she's really a diva. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here rubbing her mane, not really paying attention. All of a sudden she puts her head right here on my shoulder. And all of a sudden, all of that load seemed to dissipate into the air. So, wow. (laughs) Um, I don't believe in reincarnation, that sort of thing. So uh, I was a little stumped, but that's really, that's that's the magic of working with horses. And I go there, I've had bonds with different ones. I'm working with a young one named Cash who came to the farm, malnourished. He's, He's three years old. He, he needs to learn to stop biting, <laughs> he's getting, but he's finding his way. There's another horse I work with, a, a big Frisian named Jesse. You take him to the shows. He wins all the ribbons. Beautiful, stunning horse, but you take him back to the barn. He's a scared. He's afraid of everything. We think he was probably beaten um, by a prior owner. Just scared of everything when he gets back into the barn. And so I work with them. The other thing I do is I like to spend a lot of time with the little mini horses. I thought they were these little sweet, quiet things. No, it's like any sibling, brothers and sisters, watching them fight among each other. There's a herd. The guy who was the boss, his name was Sammy. 
he uh, there's seven mini horses and he used to be top dog until about three years ago and his friend died, never got over the grief. And um, so I saw some parallels there and I always wondered whether or not get over the grief. Well, guess what? Guess who's number one again? Sammy's back on top. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so that's really been helpful to me too. And just, you know, as we say in the recovery program, doing the next right thing, helping other people. You know, it's 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 good for you. It's good for the individual, and it's it's good for society. Because the other thing I realized, I had, I, you know, the you're responsible for our actions. I needed to be arrested. I needed to go to jail. I needed that treatment program. Part of that is the giving back. I don't view that as a twenty hour thing. I just view that as an act of redemption, and that's what I need to do. That's what I owe. That's when I owe society. So it makes stronger communities if people are in recovery, you know, don't get behind the wheel. Oh, my dear. It's complicated. I mean, and, and I look at you and I see you um, as a servant leader. You know, it's, it's not a debt you have to, there's no debt to pay. I mean, you're, you're giving of yourself. And um, that's the beautiful thing about serving. It's like, when you do that and you do it with open hands and an open heart, the healing comes. I mean, you're helping people, but you, you're helping, you're getting helped along the way. It's like your, it's like your therapy horses, you know, it's, it's a beautiful mutual thing. We are our brothers and our sisters keepers and we need, you know, and I'm just sorry. Some, somewhere, somebody along the way didn't say, Kayla, I'm sorry that took you so long to get help, but I'm thankful that you're sharing your story, that you're, um, it's important that people remember what happened on 9-11. I know it's so hard for you to have to relive this each and every year, but, you know, as the keeper of the story, someone who was there, God had, he knew you could handle it. That's what I realized too about, uh, I'm a lapsed Catholic you know, I had to deal with people who raised issues about where was God that day? Where was God that day? I told myself I would I would never do that. But through recovery programs, I've gotten stronger in my faith. And I realized that moment there had to be an angel with me in that stairwell. Absolutely. As I see Hazel in and out of the photo, who knew she would photobomb us? Um, <laughs> also, and when I got that DUI in January 2017. A month later, my dog died. So guess what? I made that my sobriety anniversary. So at some point, I'll get another dog. I just want to continue working on myself um, and then get a service dog. Exactly. I see that little puppy energy. I know. And that's, that's good healing for the soul, too. And good companionship. Well, just such an honor to, to call you my friend and to be able to work together. And, oh, my gosh, I just can't believe what a survivor and what a fighter you are and um, what a difference your life is making for so many people. So stay strong, Kayla. You've, you've been through hell and back many times, and you're still going. Thank you. Thank you, Rena. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> To work with you, I think of you as a steel magnolia. <laughs> Whatever that is. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. And I, I'm from New Orleans, so there's a lot of strength in us Southern girls. I know. Yeah. 
Okay, my dear. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And um, extra prayers coming your way as we hit this 20-year anniversary for 9-11. Um, one, one question for kind of the younger people. What is important for them to remember about 9-11 or for them to know from your story? I think we need to value each other. There's hate in the world. It may have always exist. We can't change other people. We can change how we treat each other. You know, we live in a world, some people get angry. They, they unfriend them on Facebook if, to vaccinate, to, to not vaccinate, to judge other people by that. We need to be able to learn to, to agree to disagree and to just respect each other and to be kind. So simple, right? Exactly. And I think you're such a perfect example of that because to to see you, to know you, you would never really know that you carry such a tremendous burden on your heart and have been through such trauma. So it's like, you know, just looking at people, you don't know. Be kind. That's true. Yeah. Be kind. Okay, my dear. Thank you for sharing your story. Keep on keeping on. (laughs) All right, Irene. Okay. I love you, sister. 9-11 for me is, it's hard. It's something I experience you know, once a year when the anniversary comes around and my heart is crushed when I see the attack that happened to our country. It, uh, it was deeply personal for me and I think it was for most every American. It was um, in the aftermath, American flags sold out. Everybody was driving around with flags on their cars and really felt that the tragedy unified us in a lot of ways. And that was one good thing that came out of it. Um, the other is we just can't forget. We can't forget who the enemy is and how vicious the attacks can be. All of that, I mean, that's been hashed over time and time again. But I think it's important for us to remember the survivors. And um, I think it's really a travesty that Kayla hasn't received support in any number of ways as a victim of that attack. So I'm not sure where we could go from here. Uh, Remember her in your prayers. If you have people who have resources for those who have PTSD, for civilian PTSD victims, um, reach out to me and I'll connect her with those. She's walking it out one day at a time, one step at a time. This time of year is really, really tough on her, understandably so. And um, I'm just so thankful to have her as my friend. She she is a true American hero in every sense of the word. And the fact that she hasn't given up one foot in front of the other, that is recovery. And um, I admire her so much. And I'm so glad to share her story with you, my listeners. Thank you so much for being here, for tuning in, for sharing this very important episode of the Relevate podcast. Uh, There is hope in her story to be brave, to carry on, um, to just not quit. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.